Well, I'm very happy to be joined today by James Barrett-Miles from Green Miles Consulting. James, you and I are going to be talking about funding for decarbonisation and renewables infrastructure. Before we do that, can you just give people listening a bit of a sense of your background and, and the perspective that you're coming at this from? Yes, of course. So um, first of all, thank you very much for, for letting me um, talk on this podcast. Very excited to, uh, to have the opportunity to talk a little bit about decarbonisation. Uh, my background in particular is corporate finance around renewable infrastructure. I've been in that market for about 15 years now. So I've seen the transition of renewable infrastructure from near cottage industry through to very much the mainstream in terms of financial investor appetite and what have been the levers and the drivers to move that asset class from novel to commoditized, which is extremely interesting. Uh, so uh, Green Miles is my own service company. Uh, Green Miles uh, provides uh, a variety of strategic and finance raising advice to both infrastructure and growth technology targeting decarbonisation platforms. So the kind of clients you're working with, I know, for example, you're working with technology companies, but uh, what, what other kinds of groups do you do you advise or, or get involved with? So I advise a range of clients. Uh, I have a lot of corporate clients who are very interested in issues around decarbonisation within, within their own factory, factory perimeter. How do they drive sort of combined issues, the circular economy, decarbonisation, uh, increased renewable energy, but also achieving cost competitiveness against competitors for the long term? And how those often competing factors kind of pull together to form a kind of holistic strategy that provides real return on capital in whatever way. Uh, equally, I'm still advising growth tech companies around commercialising and finding the opportunity to exploit their technology in emerging infrastructure markets, such as decarbonising fuel switching corporates, for example, so away from the mainstream renewable technologies of wind and solar. And equally, I still work quite a lot for um, for SMEs around the circular economy, buying and selling in companies around that space. So, for example, a lot of work in plastics, plastics recycling, and those kind of growth areas of circular economy. Let's kick off then with, we're, as I said, we're, we're going to talk specifically around the kind of the funding landscape for decarbonisation and renewables infrastructure. So big, nice, juicy, broad question. Uh, we're talking mostly about the UK market, although I will ask you to pull in what you're aware of elsewhere. But tell us a bit about the market appetite that you're seeing around those sorts of projects. Um, yeah. What, what's changing or isn't it changing? I don't know. Give me your give me your view. I think the um, yeah, ha- having been in the market for over 15 years, I mean, it's, it's quite noticeable just how much volume of capital is now being uh, entering into the renewable market from an infrastructure perspective. When I when I first started at Ernst and Young in the mid mid noughties, infrastructure or renewable infrastructure as an asset class was not well understood, not well un- not well known, con- considered to be quite high risk. The regulatory incentives behind that asset class weren't, weren't really understood or seen as investment grade. And, you know, compare that to now where suddenly we have a proliferation of assets across the wind, onshore, onshore wind, offshore wind, solar space. It's, it's absolutely phenomenal to the point where that, that deployment of infrastructure within renewables has driven a levelized cost of production advantage to such an extent that that renewable power is effectively grid parity with traditional forms of, of fossil generated power, gas or coal or what have you. And that's a phenomenal achievement within a within a very small window of time, 10 years to achieve grid parity on a 
on a, an emerging energy source like renewables is absolutely fundamental, absolutely incredible. But it really does show how powerful government incentives and, and government mechanisms to support can be if they're structured in the right way. And are you seeing this mostly being focused on renewable electricity or is there demand from institutions for other forms of renewable or, or low carbon generation projects? That's a really good question. And, and you know, predominantly the, the deployment of infrastructure from a renewable perspective in the last 10 years has almost entirely been weighted towards renewable electricity. Interestingly enough, in the, in the early to mid noughties, the focus was almost entirely on biofuel as the kind of route to uh, renewable power in a more kind of holistic sense. And people thought that that might well be the sort of uh, panacea for the sector. Interestingly enough, it didn't work that way for a variety of reasons. And actually, renewable electricity was very much the gateway kind of into a sort of low carbon world. Um, And, you know, I I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I'd say a very, very, very significant proportion of of financial investment into the renewable space, renewable infrastructure space over the last 10 years has been in, in predominantly electricity generating assets and predominantly utility grade scale assets going straight into grid rather than anything else. That, that being said, I think, you know, you've also asked me you know, what, what's sort of changing. And I guess the reality is that, you know, the, the market is, is very sophisticated now. The opportunities for uh, standard wind, onshore wind or solar development are slightly less, albeit the market is emerging again for non-regulated support uh, assets, which is an emerging kind of theme we're seeing in, in the UK world anyway. Offshore wind will still be a very important part of any government's kind of um, policy of, of delivering on renewable power. And we've seen that through Boris Johnson's recent statements about uh, the amount of offshore wind he's after. But interestingly enough, and perhaps more pertinent for, for the conversation around the, the theme of your conference, there's much more focus now on decarbonizing the other areas of the energy sector away from electricity. Uh, having said that, electricity's reach in terms of the low carbon or decar or, or zero carbon solution to power is extending out of traditional electrical areas into things like mobility and e-mobility, which is a fundamental change in, in how energy is delivered into our system. However, there are some areas of the energy mix that just cannot be delivered effectively by electricity. Therefore, there's a, a requirement to look at alternative technologies and alternative ways of decarbonizing other aspects such as heat, such as industrial input fuel use, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite interesting now that those were always projects that were kind of looked at and considered by developers over the last 10 years. Uh, in theory, they showed very attractive investment returns. Uh, however, they got very little investment traction because of the perceived risk and return of the projects through how the how how the project was put together in contracting structures relative to what you could achieve in offshore wind or solar or, or onshore wind. Can you expand on that a little bit? So those kind of contracting contractual structures that were perhaps presenting barriers, can you just expand on that a bit? The fundamental blocker um, for those harder to reach kind of areas of, 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 of the energy mix fundamentally about new technology and how new technologies performance is is mitigated under contract so that's a combination of making sure that when it's built it actually works at the end of the build phase so a build contractor would need to typically offer a right to reject at the end of the commissioning period which is a very significant downside risk to 
a lot of to build contractors relative to the margin that they could make. And equally, an ability for a project owner to outsource some of the performance risk of new technologies throughout the life of the infrastructure, which is, you can imagine, maybe at least 10 years, possibly extending into 20. So it's all about trying to find that right balance of risk and return in those contracts around newer technologies that are needed to decarbonize those harder to reach areas that renewable electricity can't can't reach, if you like. And, and, and you know, we, we, we've seen that progression happen in offshore wind. Offshore wind was a classic example where the, the contract risk structures at the start appear to be very challenging and very expensive to mitigate risk. But early projects were delivered. The track record of the asset class was proven and established. And that drove more confidence in the contracting supply chain to take more risk and price that risk accordingly, which then encouraged a lower form of financing into the into those projects, which then enabled the asset to become more commoditized and then scale. So hopefully we're following that example again with decarbonizing these newer areas of the energy sector. And are you seeing any kind of novel kind of ways of building contracts around decarbonization specifically? Or is it it really is a yes, no answer, I guess it or is it? It still comes back to that fundamental piece about how do you mitigate new technology or emerging technology risk in build and in operations? So that, that issue is always pervasive across new areas of the market. But you know, experience shows that that can be overcome in time with a combination of regulatory support and, and increasing supply chain and contractor confidence. Um, there's always the pervasive issue about feedstock into into some of these new technologies that require perhaps the processing of waste or biomass into upgraded syngas or other forms of, of processed heat or, or gas. And feedstock sourcing is a perennial issue for any financier of those types of infrastructure. E- equally, you know, to, 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 to fund that kind of infrastructure for uh, fuel switching corporates, for example, there's always the question about who funds the asset. And you know, is that something that's funded by the corporate themselves? Or is it something that is better funded by a third party who's more able and willing to take those risks? And that might equally be a function of the scale of the infrastructure required to actually deliver the returns. It may well be that the, the infrastructure needed is just far above the kind of maximum capex thresholds for a corporate to incur for, for, for utility provision, for example. So that's the piece of it that I suppose um, I'm hearing the most about from the industrials that we talk to and, and who we're working with is is exactly that. It's the how, uh, well, you know, question one is always, is the tech really scalable? And there's more and more evidence it is. But question two is then always, and how on earth are we going to actually make this work in in you know, investment terms. Yeah, and, and I think the, the the thing or one of the trends in the market that I've seen, and uh, and I'm, I'm I'm acutely aware of this because the area of specialism that I had at Ernst and Young was around uh, energy from waste and bioenergy, particularly using the commodity offtake for corporate usage, heat, power, or, or combinations of. There, there is an increasing financial infrastructure investor appetite for those type of projects where actually the cash flows are, are, are underpinned by what's known as an ESCO contract with a with an end user corporate who agrees to buy the heat or power or electricity or any combination of from the 
co-located project for a, on a, on a long-term basis at some kind of optimized pricing structure that provides value to the corporate, but also provides you know the, the required return on investment for the, for, for the underlying asset owner. So that's a situation where the ESCO is effectively structured into a third-party SPV and funded by a third party, and then the corporate's relationship with that entity is through a long-term ESCO agreement. Now, th- th- there's, there's always been interest in that type of project, and there's been examples over the last 10 years where those kind of projects have been funded more with more conventional technology. So a good example is some of the um, biomass to uh, CHP solutions that have been installed in some of the Scottish distilleries for example, uh, you know that that's a clear, clear kind of sign that that kind of structure works. But but more recently, the focus is entirely moving towards renewable heat, uh, given the fact that a lot of manufacturing corporates' uh, decarbonisation requirements are not around electricity; it's actually around um, their their heat or process gas usage, and that is something you can't decarbonise through electricity. It has to be through these types of embedded CHP-type ESCO units. So therefore, the, the funding market has kind of acknowledged, understood that, identified the need, and it is looking to provide capital for those types of projects. Because actually, if you can mitigate the build risk and performance risk through the technology issue, which we talked about earlier, the, 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 the fundamentals of the projects are extremely attractive on the basis that you know you have a strong investment-grade ESCO offtake contract with a corporate underpinning the cash flows of the project, which is fundamentally what any infrastructure asset wants. And interestingly enough, we've seen two or three recent examples of very major renewable infrastructure funds, typically focus on renewable uh, electricity, wind and solar, raising specifically dedicated funds for renewable heat, um, both at the kind of residential level, but also at the larger scale industrial decarbonisation level. So clearly, it, it's a function of, first of all, the commoditization of the standard renewable markets, wind and solar. And it's much harder, you know, the fact it's much harder to make a return for an infrastructure investor in those areas. Uh, and equally, sort of an acknowledgement that to make your required returns on capital, you've got to look into new areas to find those kind of valuable projects, but find projects that have enough investment grade robustness to them to make them attractive. And that's why these ESCO structures can can be very, very appealing. I know before we set up the podcast, we'd sort of said we might talk about, is there appetite for uh, projects outside of those kind of utility scale? I I guess the answer is yes, there is. But maybe a better question is, what what's the reality of the proportion of deals that are outside that more you know utility scale size is it is it minimal at the moment are you seeing actually it's quite a you know substantial flow and i i I would say it's it's gathering momentum because people are starting to manufacturing corporates who, who are looking kind of the increasing trends around circular economy and net zero are really starting to kind of get their mind around what what needs to happen and and how how they can achieve it so actually you know, looking at the benefits of an ESCO structure from a manufacturing corporate's perspective, it, it, it is actually very appealing if you can structure it properly. However, I guess the challenge is it hasn't been done many times before. So it's 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 quite new and novel in terms of a contracting structure and having a third party owning an SVV that's effectively on site, providing core kind of utility service to your core manufacturing operation. That, 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 own anxiety, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that, that's that's not an that's a slightly unusual because um, obviously it carries downside risks in terms of the risk of disruption to your core manufacturing tra- uh, processes. But you know, ESCO ESCO structures are, are are put together acknowledging that you know more often than not, or almost in every time, there's a standby power source or energy source 
if the prime esco technology doesn't work for whatever reason due to an unplanned outage so the ability to sort of utilize existing you know nat gas pipeline trains for example for standby fuel will always be there so you know there, there is there's there's robust mitigations to sort of some of the downside risks that might be seen as kind of key issues by corporates. But, you know, fundamentally, um, the value of it, particularly off balance sheeting large elements of CapEx at relatively attractive investor return profiles is is something that's well worth investigating because it could provide a valuable return relative to the low carbon story it gives corporates uh, around circular economy and and, and the, the greenhouse gas emission of the products they're making. And so when you you mentioned um, as part of that, that kind of one of the challenges or maybe, uh, yeah, I guess it's a challenge for the investor is, is really identifying those deals that are like robustly of investment grade. What what are the kind of the hallmarks of that? Or, or if it's easier, what are the hallmarks of the deals that maybe aren't getting made and aren't going through yet? I'd answer it in a different way by saying, actually, it's, it's more often than not, not the corporate or the underlying manufacturing corporate's responsibility to structure the deal. Actually, more often than not, there are there are developers who are very experienced in terms of pulling together the integrated contracting and financing package required to present to a corporate to demonstrate, A, the value for the for the long-term ESCO contract is value enhancing for that corporate in terms of comparison to nat gas or, or what what have you but equally for the for the low carbon or zero carbon you know greenhouse gas reduction it provides the business so actually you know there there is a well established developer class within the market that takes the development risk and the contracting structuring and finance structuring responsibility to make it easy as it can be for the corporates and you know fundamentally the 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 development of of the financing package and the contracting package goes hand in hand so you know more often than not the better developers have all of that together you know when coming to corporates to present their their proposition let's uh, flip this slightly so we've sort of been talking very much from that kind of uh, the deal the investor side of things let's let's look at it from the uh, corporates from the industrialists who are looking to decarbonize so in in amongst the, the people that you meet and the clients that you're taking on, what are the kind of issues that you're seeing for them? Like when they come to you, obviously there's a million issues around decarbonisation, but when they come to talk to you, what are what are the top sort of two or three things that they're really commonly presenting you with that they most often need advice around? I guess the low-hanging fruit is decarbonising your electricity sourcing. And, you know, there's, there's now quite well-established routes for, for, for achieving that. So funnily enough, Quite a lot of the questions are about the validity of the sort of early solutions for decarbonizing electricity, which is around um, green tariff power from grid providers and, and purchasing regos and things like that, where you don't have direct association with the underlying power generation, but you contractually buy by association with it, if you see what I mean. So that that's kind of evolved into doing direct power purchase agreements with third-party assets that, that's become quite a significant trend out in the market and, and, and fairly well established. So, so away from that, you know, the, the, the questions are always around, well, electricity is great and it's a part of our energy mix, but actually, you know, if we're a manufacturing corporate, it's only a small part. So how do we decarbonize the areas that electricity can't reach? And, you know, what are the solutions? Um, you know, can that be funded by third parties? All of the things, you know, that we're talking about, because fundamentally, you know, the infrastructure costs of 
decarbonizing harder to reach areas are such that they typically take take it outside the realms of the delegated capex authorities of these corporates so then that creates a whole new set of problems because you have third party interactions that need to be understood and managed so you you quickly move on to a conversation around well you know how can a third party you know, realistically interface into a, into a co-located asset structured in an SPV. So all of the issues and, and challenges that we were talking about a minute ago become kind of important to understand. And ultimately, you know, hopefully the corporate can see through the challenges to actually understand this is, this is the most cost-effective way of achieving return on capital um, for, for what they're trying to do around net zero targeting or, or, or what, however that's expressed in terms of greenhouse gas reduction or, or what have you. And are you, again, out of interest, really, I suppose, you know, most of the companies that I read about who are doing projects or those that I've spoken with, they tend to be like the kind of definitely top 10 within their industries. I know there's a lot more activity than that, but is there SME industrial activity around this or or do you see it still decarbonisation being a focus for the, the real kind of bigger the bigger entities. I, I, I think it's likely to be driven by the bigger entities, to be honest, because, you know, um, when when you're looking to structure an ESCO project from a bankability perspective, you're looking for that top tier ESCO covenant to, to really underpin the cash flows from that long term ESCO uptake agreement. However, you know, there have been examples of slightly smaller pieces of renewable embedded infrastructure. That, that, that have a, a kind of mid-tier, if you like, a corporate ESCO behind them. Um, but, you know, investors got comfortable with the long longevity and robustness of that, that contract through, you know, whatever means, maybe the longevity of the business and how long it's been there, maybe the level of security that is put behind the ESCO contract. You know, it, it could be a, 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 a whole raft of things. But I think, you know, in general, the developer market always acts in the same way. It goes to the most bankable areas first to make sure its projects are as investment grade as possible because in theory that drives the highest cash flows because it has the lowest investor return requirements. So, you know, as a developer, as you start there and you work down depending on, you know, how well you, 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 you penetrate the top table of clients. But that's not to say that this structure isn't applicable for, you know, tiers below the very top uh, of manufacturing corporates. So again, from the from the manufacturer's perspective, and I, I know you'll address some, address some of this already. But what what are the the main funding barriers right now? Then, if we were going to tick them off, what what are they, and how can uh, corporates kind of prepare for them or kind of yeah address them? Uh, main, the, the the biggest funding barriers are three really. One is as we talked about the build contracts mitigating construction risk and performance risk in, in emerging technologies and how, how you do that. The, the second one is making sure you have the right ESCO contract, um, which is something obviously directly in the gift of the, the underlying manufacturing corporates to negotiate. And as a realistic kind of a realistic position in terms of what value is for that corporate, i.e., you know, against your trending long-term view on 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 that gas pricing, for example, relative to you know, pricing in, you know, the potential value of carbon offsets or carbon tax, and how that works. Uh, and equally, you know, making sure that you have the ability to supply the project with its required feedstock if it's, if it's processing waste or, or biomatter, which more often than not these projects are. So those are the, the, the holy trinity, if you like, of project risks that always have to be overcome, you know, in, in a pretty standard way to get investment into them. Um, but that's fine because, you know, the, there's a clear kind of template as to how you do that based on the funding of of 
quite a significant amount of biomass to power projects under the old RO uh, incentive scheme uh, in the last four to five years. So it's clear what investment grade is and isn't in terms of those crucial contracts. So that, that's the threshold that any developer needs to work towards. The, the other thing that's sort of lurking around in the background is, is, is this question of incentives. It, you could express incentives in terms of carbon tax or carbon tax abatement through these types of low carbon technology. But equally, you know, in the recent past, we've had direct incentive um, structures that, that are designed to stimulate these types of projects. For the moment, we don't have those. The focus of, of, of regulatory incentive support is around CFDs, which are particularly relevant to offshore wind and the auctioning process of offshore wind power to try and drive that price down to commodity levels as quickly as possible. So that's, that's where the government's strategy has been, which is absolutely fair enough to try and demonstrate taxpayer value for money in, in times of austerity. But by the same token, that kind of, that kind of platform and and um, support mechanism doesn't really work for for emerging technologies that need a little bit more stability to to, to aid their long term planning as they develop infrastructure. So that's probably a kind of wider wider issue around the market is how do we how do we incentivize this type of technology and this type of project solution given the fact that you know the the government policies clearly brought mainstream grid renewable electricity to grid parity. Um, Surely there's a there's a there's an argument to say that that incentive support should now be switched to the harder harder to decarbonise areas that need to be approached in the same way as standard renewable electricity was approached ten years ago, which has produced the results that we see now. So if you if you were on the other side of the fence and you were a policymaker or policy you know influencer, someone advising Bayes or whoever, what what would you consider the right kind of progressive? Uh, landscape to be so if, if if it's not just going to be as straightforward as let's apply the same mechanisms we use for wind clearly not you know what what would be what in your opinion would be the right the right kind of move i think it it clearly has to be some specific regulatory support for this type of embedded thermal-esque type project um maybe on, along the same lines of the old ro scheme that we had until about 2015 and or it could be a particular CFD pot um, allocated to this type of technology, where the the the, the clearing price for the for the for the for the offtake isn't dictated by the lowest price. It's dictated by something else, which makes sure that you know there's sufficient headroom in 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 cash flows to drive the right level of returns. So, and I, and I think that's important because the ultimate policy is is the carbon tax. And the carbon tax abatement, and until that's clear and very well understood by investors, a more direct kind of regulatory support incentive is going to be needed to, to give investors comfort over the cash flows of these these ESCO projects. James, thank you, thank you so much for giving giving that perspective. I uh, I think I had pre warned you that I spend a lot of the, my time researching with industrials rather than people who came from the finance and investment background. So uh, I think that was a really good really good overview of the situation here in the UK. And thank you very much for for joining me. Thank you.